And welcome back. This is the Exxon. I am Rob McConnell, and we're coming to you from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Now, if you'd like to send me an email and uh, send us any comments, suggestions, or yes, even those nasty letters that some people who have nothing better to do with their time, you can send me an email to exxon at exxonradiotv.com on all social media sites, Exxon Radio TV. And to find out about the programming we have available for you 24-7, 365 on the Exxon Broadcast Network, visit www.xzbn.net. And for the programming lineup on the Exxon TV channel on Simultv, visit www.simultv.com. Starting February the 1st, we will be on iLaunch Television throughout the United States. And later on in the month of February, we're going to be carried by Comcast. More information on that as we get it here. So, as always, here there is total transparency between what we do here at Relmar and with you, the members of the Exxon Nation. My guest this hour is Henry Herman Bauer. He is an emeritus professor of chemistry and science studies at Virginia Polytech Institute and State University, also known as Virginia Tech. He is the author of several books and articles on fringe science, arguing in favor of the existence of the Loch Ness Monster and against Emanuel Velikovsky, and is an AIDS denialist. Following his retirement in 1999, he was editor-in-chief of the Journal of Scientific Exploration, a fringe science publication, and uh, Henry also served as Dean of the College of Arts and Scientists, Sciences, I should say, at Virginia Tech, generating controversy by criticizing affirmative action. His website, www.henrybauer.homestead.com. And Henry, welcome to the Exxon. Thank you. Glad to be here. Tell me about the Loch Ness Monster. I got interested in uh, in that uh, uh, more than 50 years ago when, mm-hmm. by chance, I picked up a book called Loch Ness Monster by Tim Dinsdale, and mm-hmm. um, this was around 1960. And I remember that uh, at that time I was fully aware that uh, the Loch Ness Monster was a myth and a tourist trap. And so I had a sort of mental sneer as I picked up this book. <laughs> uh, I used to browse in the library. Uh, the li- my home library then, uh, our local library, had a bin where people brought books back and just dumped them in there. And I used to browse in there thinking that the books that people had read would be the most interesting one. So I, I picked this up and um, uh, with a mental sneer, but I leafed through it, and here there were some photos that claimed to be still fil- stills from a film that the author had taken. And uh, that really set me back. Uh, how could... Uh, you know, how could that be the case mm-hmm. that you have a, an actual film of a large creature in Loch Ness when everybody seems to agree that uh, that it's not real? So uh, 
I was hooked, and um, I tried to read more about it. And one of the things that sort of surprised me was that I could find nothing in the actual scientific literature about it. Uh, but uh, there was a group in Britain, I was in Australia at the time, there was a group in Britain that was called the Loch Ness Investigation Bureau, uh, and uh, I joined them, they send out news, sent out newsletters, and so for about a dozen years, uh, I was being kept abreast of what these uh, Nessie hunters were doing. And then a dozen years later, in 72, 1972, uh, I took a sabbatical leave in England. And in the springtime, we went to have a look at Loch Ness. Uh, and it happened that Tim Dinsdale, who had written that original book that I'd read, happened to be there at the same time, and I introduced myself to him. Uh, and years later, when I was at the University of Kentucky, in Lexington, Kentucky, in the United States, I arranged some lecture tours for Tim. And in those lecture tours, uh, I saw his film enlarged to 35 millimeters. And uh, it's absolutely stunning when you see it like that. You see this enormous wake being thrown up by something that is moving in a curved path through the water, and then it submerges and yet the wake continues. So this is some animal, an animate thing that is quite large and that submerges mm -hmm. and then comes up again. Uh, so uh, that evidence seemed to me to be pretty conclusive. Uh, but then in the 1970s, there were also some underwater photographs taken. Uh, and over the years, there have been many contacts by sonar with some sort of large moving underwater objects. Uh, the uh, the uh, information you get from sonar is quite limited, though. Right. Uh, it doesn't give you shape. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, estimates of size uh, are very indeterminate because the strength of the echo depends on the difference in density between the water and the object. And that depends with an animal, uh, for example, on how much air is in the body. If there's if there's a large air bladder, you'll get a strong signal. If it's a waterlogged water tree, it'll be a very weak signal. Right. So, to my mind, mm -hmm. we have evidence from sonar. We have evidence from underwater photographs. We have evidence from Tim Dinsdale's film. And to my mind, this is conclusive. But the great hope now is 
with what's called environmental DNA. I hadn't heard of that until about a year ago. Uh, it turns out that all living things shed cells from their bodies. And environmental DNA studies consist of filtering snow, rain, seawater, and collecting those cells and then analyzing the DNA in them. Uh, Professor Gemmell, who is at the University of Auckland in New Zealand, uh, says that he has shown that he can sample the waters of Auckland Bay and by filtering out the cells and analyzing their DNA, he can identify all of the species of fish that are known to be in Auckland Bay. And last year in June, he came to Loch Ness and he took samples Mm -hmm. I think several hundred samples at different depths and locations. And he has said that by some time early this year, 2019, he expects to have the results of the analysis of the DNA. Fascinating. So my my uh, prediction is mm -hmm. that there will be some unidentified DNA that seems somehow related to marine reptiles of some sort. All right, Professor, Maybe. I hate to do this, but I have to take my break. Please oh, yeah, stand by, okay. sir. Great having right. you with us. And yeah. ExoNation, our guest this hour, Henry Bauer, and I will be back on the other side of this break as we continue our investigation into the world of the paranormal and the science of parapsychology. From here in the Exxon with yours truly, Rob McConnell. Now... Henry is the author of a fascinating book entitled Science is Not What You Think. And we'll find out more about this when we return on the other side of this break. Don't go away. Nation, uh, Henry Herman Bauer is our very special guest this hour, and uh, he's got a, a book that we're going to be talking about in a few minutes entitled Science is Not What You Think, and his website is www.henrybauer, I'm sorry, henryhbauer.homestead.com. Now, Henry, before we went to the commercial break, we were talking about Loch Ness and how uh, this other scientist from Australia has developed a uh, uh, system that will be able to read the DNA that has that is in the lock water that and he's taken several hundred samples of the lock at different places so please continue sir right it, it seems sort of like magic to me but apparently these sort of environmental DNA studies mm -hmm. are used for a number of things for example in Canada apparently they track how lynxes move around by sampling the snow for the lynx DNA. Interesting. 
Yeah, at any rate, my prediction is that when the results from Loch Ness uh, are announced, mm -hmm. uh, part of that will be that there is some DNA from an unidentified species that seems to be closely related to marine reptiles, possibly something like leatherback turtles. Mm. And, uh, you know, the most popular view of, of what Nessie is is a plesiosaur. Yes. Uh, creatures that have been extinct for uh, tens of millions of years. Mm -hmm. But in the evolutionary tree, the plesiosaurs are in the same general linkage, lineage, as turtles and snakes. And uh, leatherback turtles have actually been seen around Scotland in the oceans there. Uh, so at least we know that those critters uh, can stand the temperatures there. So at any rate, this is my prediction. Well, all right. You'll have to keep us in the loop on what happens, sir. This is, this is very interesting information. Now, you've written a book that is entitled Science is Not What You Think. What, why did you write this book, sir? Uh, because I've become very, very frustrated by the degree to which uh, people more or less automatically accept whatever official pronouncements are made about science. Uh, and the problem is that on at least two issues, mm -hmm. I believe those pronouncements are wrong on really major issues of importance to lots of people, namely HIV-AIDS and human-caused climate change. The, uh, the problem is that science has developed such a splendid reputation for the advances that it made over the last couple of hundred years that it seems inconceivable to most people that official pronouncements about science could be wrong about anything as major as climate change or HIV-AIDS. So, people don't really try to look at the evidence for themselves. So the aim of my book is to give a realistic picture of what science really is, namely a human activity. People do science, uh, and consequently it's also fallible. Uh, the history of science is perfectly clear uh, that scientists went wrong on all sorts of things very, very frequently before they learned more and corrected previously mistaken views. But people don't, uh, are not aware of this generality of science having been wrong. Uh, for example, many people have heard of Thomas Kuhn, who wrote about scientific mm -hmm. revolutions. And they interpret this as scientific revolutions were 
tremendous advances, jumps forward in science. But the thing is, they were revolutionary because they overturned wrong ideas that had been the official scientific view before that. So uh, that is one of the things that uh, I hope people will gather from the book, that it's a human activity, it's fallible. The history of science is the history of all sorts of tentative trial and error things until better views were arrived at. Uh, I, yeah, sorry. No, I, I was just going to ask you, sir, about your your opinion on on HIV/AIDS. Yeah, uh, I t I turned from chemistry to science studies because mm -hmm. uh, I was fast. I wanted to understand how science really works, and uh, I'd been stimulated by Nessie and science not having anything to say about it. So I made a specialty of looking for controversial issues. Uh, and by looking for controversial issues, uh, in the early 1990s, I came across this uh, uh, phenomenon uh, that there were people who denied that HIV caused AIDS. Uh, so I... Uh, I read into what they were saying, uh, and I found it plausible, but uh, I certainly didn't find it convincing uh, until in the early 2000s, uh, one of those books said that when the U.S. Army started to test potential recruits for HIV, they found that all across the United States, teenage girls were testing HIV positive as frequently or more frequently than teenage boys. This was in the mid-1980s. Mm. And that simply could not be true because the official view is that HIV entered the United States in the late 70s in ghettos of gay men. There's no way in which a sexually transmitted agent could have spread from ghettos of gay men in a few large cities in the United States so that just half a dozen years later, teenage girls would be as, as often infected as teenage boys all over the country, Montana, Idaho, Louisiana, everywhere. Well, one of the things that I knew about science was that you do not accept one research report. Uh, so I looked at the original, but it said what, uh, what it had been quoted to say. Uh, so then I looked for other reports of HIV testing, and uh, eventually I had looked at the published reports of HIV tests in the United States 
from the early 1980s into the late 1990s, and it was one of the most emotionally intense experiences of my life because those reports had patterns in them that are simply incompatible with an infectious agent or a sexually transmitted agent. For example, in any group that's tested, the likelihood of being HIV positive increases with age from the teens up to early middle age, the late 30s, early 40s, and then declines again. Any group that you test mm -hmm. has that. Uh, every group that you test has racial disparities. Uh, people of African ancestry will test HIV positive much more often than others. Asians test, on average, maybe three times less than Caucasians. For example, the CDC's latest figures in the United States are that black Americans, males, are 20 times as likely to test HIV positive as Caucasian American males. And there's a similar disparity with uh, black and white women. You do not have that sort of uh, general constant pattern with gonorrhea or syphilis. I mean, those, those things pop up and, and die down at various times in various places. All right, uh, Henry, you and I have to take our news break at yeah, the bottom okay. of the hour. Please stand by, right. sir. Exonation, our guest this hour is Henry Bauer. And if you'd like to find out more about Henry, his website is, are you ready for this? www.henryhbauer.homestead.com And Henry and I will return on the other side of this break as we continue here in the Exxon from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Explanation, Henry H. Bauer is our special guest. His website is um, www.henryhbauer.homestead.com. And um, we're talking to Henry about his book that is entitled, Science is Not What You Think. Um, Henry, so why all the misinformation about AIDS and HIV? Well, the history of the thing is that... Uh, um, there was this uh, finding that gay men, it seemed largely gay men, were coming up in New York and San Francisco and L.A. in the early 1980s with these uh, um, diseases, ailments called opportunistic infections, that are normally found or had in the past 
been found only with people who had damaged immune systems. Uh, and for a number of years, the question was whether this seemed to be a lifestyle problem or whether it was a new infectious agent of some sort. Uh, and in April of 1984, the Department of Health and Human Services held a public press conference introducing Dr. Gallo of the National Cancer Institute, who said that he had discovered the probable cause of AIDS as a retrovirus. And uh, that was a critical time because uh, biologists of all sorts need funding for their research. Mm -hmm. And the Department of Health and Human Services through National Institutes of Health is the major patron of funds for research. So as soon as Gallo had made that announcement, uh, people poured, rushed in to ask for research money in order to investigate this new uh, infectious agent. Uh, the thing is uh, that the data, the original data were mistaken. It was n the commonality amongst the original AIDS victims was not that they were gay, it was that they were heavy abusers of drugs, so-called recreational drugs. Right. And uh, Gordon Stewart, uh, a Brit Scottish uh, uh, epidemiologist in the 1970s, when there was a really great drug epidemic in New York, had actually described uh, symptoms that were just like AIDS symptoms amongst people who were abusing injectable drugs. Uh, so that was one thing that was wrong in, this, in, uh, in the uh, assumed commonality. And uh, John Lauritsen, who is a gay man and a, worked as a survey research analyst, was, I think, the first person to point out that if the CDC had classified the early AIDS people not by whether they were gay or not, but by whether they abused drugs or not, they would have found that as the commonality. Another thing that was wrong about the uh, what is generally said about the early AIDS victims, you'll, you'll read commonly that the early AIDS victims were young, previously healthy gay men. Right. Many years later, Michelle Cochran did a PhD thesis in which she went back to the original medical records mm -hmm. in the hospitals out there and she found that this was really not the case, that the average age of those early AIDS cases was mid to late 30s, and that they were not, had not been previously healthy, 
they seemed to be otherwise healthy when they approached physicians because of the symptoms they were having. But they all had long histories of many previous uh, venereal infections and antibiotic treatments, both of which uh, tend to harm the immune system. So it seems to me that the evidence is fairly clear that what had happened was that in the early or mid-1970s, there was the Stonewall Riots in New York, which were the beginning of uh, gay liberation. And a small proportion of gay men uh, just went wild after that and uh, uh, what's called the fast lane lifestyle of partying, promiscuous sex and lots of recreational drugs. Uh, something that has been described, for example, by Larry Kramer, who is also a gay man. Larry wrote a book called Faggots novel, mm-hmm. but in which he described this non-stop partying, and, and uh, Larry Kramer himself was sort of ostracized by the gay community because he was uh, criticizing them for concentrating on uh, this sort of behavior instead of enjoying Uh, the relative freedom that was coming with less social repression of homosexuality. Uh, Another place that uh, describes this original mad lifestyle is a documentary film uh, called uh, When Ocean Meets Sky. And you can uh, you can locate its website by googling that, and it describes how Fire Island uh, was a place where people, largely from New York, would go and and uh, party madly with things like uh, uh, near the entrance of a of a dance hall there would be a bowl of uh, antibiotics for people to take as prophylactic against the sexual infections that they expected to Mm. contract during the partying there. The thing is that uh, antibiotics and other infections are damaging to the immune system. Uh, Another critical point is that most people uh, are aware that the early AIDS victims had sort of iconic symptoms of purple patches on the skin, uh, which were called Kaposi's sarcoma. Uh, But it turns out that those purple patches were not the result of uh, a cancer, but a result of sniffing nitrite drugs. Uh, Amyl nitrite uh, 
uh, a drug that was popularly called poppers. It was uh, available in sealed glass vials, and you would crack them open and there would be a pop, hence the name poppers. And when you sniff that, it eases the blood vessels uh, and uh, apparently makes uh, anal intercourse less painful and the intercourse generally more mm. pleasurable. And uh, again, John Lauritsen and other authors pointed out uh, that this disease of the arteries could come from the abuse of the nitrite poppers. And enough people accepted that view that these purple patches, which were iconic of AIDS in the first years, are no longer iconic of AIDS. After half a dozen years or so, the proportion of AIDS people having this apparent Kaposi sarcoma had uh, gone almost to zero. So the, uh, the epidemiology of HIV tests is not like that of an infectious disease. The early AIDS patients were not primarily gay men. They were primarily abusers of so-called recreational drugs. And the disease supposedly iconic of AIDS uh, has almost almost disappeared within half a dozen years. And, oh, all right, uh, Doc. Oh. Yeah. All right, I've got to take my final break here, Henry. Please okay. stand by. Exonation, our guest this hour is Henry H. Bauer, and he's the author of Science is Not What You Think, and his website is www.henryhbauer.homestead.com. And we'll be back on the other side of this break as we wrap up this hour here in the Exxon from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. I'll be back. Don't go away. Welcome back, everyone. Our guest this hour is Henry H. Bauer, and um, his website is www.henryhbauer.homestead.com. First of all, Henry, thank you so much for joining us tonight, and congratulations on your book entitled Science is Not What You Think. Thank you very much. Uh, Henry, um, you and I were talking during the commercial break, and you mentioned something about a science court. Right. Could you could you could we talk about that because it seems like it's something that is that is needed. Very badly needed because most people including most pundits and mm -hmm. most of the media are unaware that there are highly qualified experts and strong evidence questioning human caused climate change 
HIV is the cause of AIDS and uh, a number of things in medicine. Mm -hmm. And because people are unaware of these minority views, this is one of the reasons why the official views seem to be accepted universally. Well, uh, about uh, 70 years ago, just after World War II, there was controversy about whether nuclear power, uh, nuclear reactors, could be safely used to generate power for civilian purposes rather than as atom bombs. And there were experts on both sides arguing technicalities. Uh, and at that time, one of the engineers involved, Arthur Kantrovitz, suggested that what policymakers really needed was some sort of a something like a court mm -hmm. that would hear opposing expert arguments and offer policymakers their best judgment on the likelihood of the views expressed by the opposing sides. Nowadays, uh, such a court, such an institution, would be valuable to make the proponents and the dissenters exchange their arguments in public. At the moment, you would be hard put to find anybody who is meeting the arguments that the HIV-AIDS so-called denialists are putting forward. The mainstream people simply ignore them. The same thing with human-caused climate change. There are eminently qualified experts who keep pointing out that the evidence is simply not there that carbon dioxide is the primary cause of global warming and climate change. But you'd be hard put to find anywhere in the media or in the public discourse a recognition that there is this qualified evidence-based dissent from those views. So uh, a science court seems to me to be the sort of institution that is needed in order to force public discussion of the pros and cons of these things. Why do you think this hasn't been done in the past? Well, science has never, science is, uh, it's an activity that has no official regulations mm. or hierarchy. Right. Uh, that's one of its strengths, of course, that it has grown through the activity of individual scientists who have uh, cooperated with one another and, and uh, argued about things. Uh, but... Uh, an essential point, which uh, I start with in my book, is that scientific activity since about World War II is an entirely different thing than it was up to that time. Up to about uh, the middle of the 20th century, you could describe science as an academic activity, 
a sort of cottage industry of individual entrepreneurs, people who were doing science out of curiosity and just looking for the best explanations for things. The Second World War changed all that because of the atomic bomb of sonar, radar, and so on. After World War II, there was this famous report by Vannevar Bush called The Endless Frontier, in which he persuaded the President of the United States that if money were put into scientific research, then the civil society could benefit just as in wartime, uh, atomic bombs and these other things had helped to win the war. Mm -hmm. Well, the amount of money has, that has poured in since middle of the 20th century is enormous. And scientists nowadays are not independent individual entrepreneurs who can work on what they happen to be interested in they are subject to being able to get grants. They can't publish unless the journal's peer reviewers agree with what they say. So what has come in is a great deal of conformity, uh, a great deal of groupthink. You don't... Uh, most people w would not imagine that groupthink is something that would apply to science, but it does. Uh, it has come about that the mainstream scientific consensus of the people who are in the important positions as editors and reviewers and so on really control what the official views are. And people who dissent from those views run the risk of lo essentially losing their careers. Uh, uh, one example, well-known example of that is Peter Duisberg at the University of California in Berkeley, who uh, was regarded as one of the world's leading virologists. Uh, when Gallo uh, said that the HIV was the probable cause of AIDS, Duisberg wrote two long articles explaining why a retrovirus could not do what HIV was supposed to do. Almost immediately, Duisberg stopped being able to publish in the major journals he stopped being invited to uh, conferences. Uh, he lost his research support from the National Science Foundation and the National Institutes of Health. Uh, and he's able to continue uh, doing research only uh, with the help of private patrons. Uh, and that same sort of thing applies unfortunately across the board now in science. It is uh, patrons and the providers of research funds who really control what science is done, what research is done, and whether or not it gets published. For instance, in the field of medicine, uh, 
uh, it's quite common for the drug companies uh, to give grants to people in academe to research uh, interesting substances for them. But the providers of the research funds control the publication of the results. Mm. And there have been a couple of notorious instances uh, where they refused to let the researchers publish their results because they were not favorable to the potential drugs. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. You know, Henry, this hour has gone by so fast. First of all, I want to thank you so much for joining us. We'll have to have you back on in the future to further discuss the wonderful topics that can be found in your book. And by the way, Exxon Nation, the name of Henry's new book is entitled Science is Not What You Think. And for more information about our guest this hour, Henry H. Bauer, visit www.henryhbauer.homestead.com. Also, he has two blogs. One is Skepticism About Science and Medicine, and that is scimedskeptic.wordpress.com. That's scimedskeptic.wordpress.com. And his second blog is HIV uh, on HIV-AIDS skepticism, entitled hivskeptic.wordpress.com. Henry, thank you so much for joining us. Take care of yourself, and I look forward to speaking to you again in the future. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I enjoyed it a great deal. Thank you very much, sir. Keep up the great work, Henry. The world needs you. Thank you. ExoNation, I'll be back on the other side of this break as we continue here in the Exxon with yours truly, Rob McConnell, from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. I'll be back after the news at the top of the hour at six and a half minutes past. Don't go away. Thank you.